All right, amen. Good morning. Uh, good to see you all here. Uh, please continue paying, praying for uh, Pastor Aaron. Uh, he was planning to preach today, but it's just feeling a little under the weather. Uh, so we uh, pray that he's getting some good rest today and that he'll be uh, feeling better soon. So please continue praying for him. Uh, we're going to be starting our study in the Gospel of John this morning. Pastor Aaron gave us a, a great intro last week, kind of an overview of the book, and we're going to start in on the text uh, today. So if you would go ahead and turn to John 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles there under the seat in front of you. Or if our reading on your phone ends up being a distraction, please feel free to use one of those uh, hard copies that we've got there. We want to give God our undivided attention as we worship and study His Word today and hear from Him. Uh, so let's protect this time and really focus in on what John uh, has to say to us this morning, uh, what God has to say to us through His Word. All right, so the opening verses of the Gospel of John, we'll be looking at the first 14 verses, and these are huge verses for uh, our faith. I think it was Pastor Aaron that said last week, if we just had the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Romans, uh, Christianity would c continue on unabated because there is so much rich uh, theology and doctrine in there for us and gives us such a clear picture of, of who Christ is and of what our faith is and, and who we are called to be as Christians. Uh, this is arguably one of the most important and foundational texts in Scripture. There is so much contained in these 14 verses that informs uh, just the most basic truths uh, that we believe about our faith, and it's all centered on one person, Jesus Christ. John opens this gospel account by going directly to what God has done for us by sending his son, Jesus, to earth in the flesh. Right off the bat, what John writes here distinguishes the Christian faith from all other religions. No other religion claims to have a God who uh, took on flesh, who came to, in human form to earth to associate with us, to uh, live among us, to serve us, to die for us, and then to rise again for us. As a matter of fact, for many religions, this whole idea of an incarnation, of God taking on human form and coming to earth, is unthinkable. Uh, Muslims, for example, will reject the deity of Christ because to them it's unthinkable that God would stoop so low as to take on human form. Uh, even the Jewish people scoff at the idea that God would become a man. In their view, he's so separate from his creation uh, that he could never taint himself by becoming like one of us. Uh, they rejected the idea of an incarnation in Jesus' day, and they continue, uh, sadly, to reject that even now. So from the outset, John is underscoring the uniqueness of our faith by pointing to the uniqueness of Jesus. He is God incarnate, sent to earth by his Father to become like us, to die for us, and then to rise again for us. He is truly God and truly man, and we'll see evidence of that as we continue our study of John's gospel. So these opening verses serve as a prologue to the Gospel of John, and it sets the stage for the rest of what John will relay as he tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, he introduces several themes here that will be important as we continue on in this letter, uh, such as the themes of Jesus being the light and the life and the truth of believers possessing the status of being God's children. Uh, and then of the rejection of Jesus by the world in general, and then by the Jewish people in particular. Uh, most importantly, however, John is clear from the very outset that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word of God, who was not only with God from eternity past, but who also is God himself. And if that assertion is not true, then the rest of what John writes is meaningless. If Jesus is not God, then he's reduced to a mere man who was either incredibly dishonest or was totally out of his mind. And John realizes the centrality of this truth that Jesus is God, and he begins the gospel with this fact. 
John's purpose in writing this letter is to make sure his readers are clear on who Jesus is and that they respond to that knowledge with repentance and faith. Uh, John actually states the purpose of his letter near the end of the gospel uh, in chapter 20, verse 31. John says, these things, the events of Jesus' life, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wants us to have a right knowledge of who Jesus is, and then he wants us to believe in the name of Jesus and to receive the eternal life that Jesus offers. John's letter is all about Jesus and his gospel. It's the good news of Jesus, according to John. And as such, he's going to continue pointing to the person and the work of Jesus in the hopes that those who read this account, his original readers and us today, will be saved. That's the goal. Know Jesus and then believe in him and be saved by him. So, because John focuses on Jesus at each point, each of the points this morning in our sermon is going to focus on Jesus. Hopefully you got the notes. If not, we've got handouts in the back there. But we want to see, what does John want us to know about Jesus? What should we know about our Savior? Let's read our passage together, and then we'll try to answer that question. So, starting in John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." Let's pray. Father, I pray you would speak to us through your word this morning, God, that you would open up uh, our eyes and our uh, ears and our hearts to understand, God. We pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired this text uh, would show us how to rightly apply and understand what you have to say to us this morning. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. So let's start by looking at verses 1 through 5, where we'll see that Jesus is God's word to man. Jesus is God's word to man. John begins his gospel with, in the beginning. What does that make us think of? Genesis 1, right? Makes us think all the way back to the beginning of Scripture where Moses records God's act of creating the heavens and the earth. John points us back to the time of creation and tells us that the word, who he'll eventually tell us is Jesus, already existed then. And that's an incredibly important point and reality for our faith. Uh, Just in the first six words of this gospel, John has already established the eternality of the Son. Now, we might read this and think that John's pointing to a specific time, uh, maybe the beginning of time or the point of creation, and just saying Jesus existed at that point. Uh, He's saying that, but what he's actually communicating is that Jesus already existed in the beginning. Uh, One author I read said this verse should be translated, when the beginning began, the word was already there. And that's important because if Jesus had a starting point, right, if he was created at some point, even if that, was, uh, even if that took place prior to the creation of the heavens and the earth, 
then he's not God. He's merely a creation of God. But John wants us to know that Jesus is God by underscoring that Jesus has always existed alongside God. He'll clearly show us that in the remainder of this verse. Uh, Before we finish the verse, though, we need to look at this title that John gives Jesus of the Word. John's unique among Bible writers in that he sees Jesus as the embodiment of God's Word and explicitly calls him the Word. Uh, We see the theme of God's Word at work throughout Scripture. Uh, For example, in Psalm 33, 6, David says, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So God's Word... Uh, can be what God says, or it can represent his creative power. But we never see it used to describe a person like we do here in John. Why does John choose to describe Jesus as the Word? He calls him uh, the Son of God later in this passage, so we might expect, expect him to say, in the beginning was the Son of God. But he says, instead, in the beginning was the Word. The Greek word for word is logos. You might have heard that word from time to time. Uh, And the idea of a creative word or a logos is not unique to John. Um, In fact, it was a belief, uh, part of the belief of the secular philosophy of that day that there was a logos uh, that was uh, responsible for maintaining order in the universe. It was this impersonal principle of uh, our idea of reason that was keeping everything running as it should. And John takes this term logos, it would have been uh, well known to his readers, and he uses it to explain that, yes, there is a cause of creation, and yes, there is a source of order in the world, but it's not a thing, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. He's not an impersonal word working invisibly behind the scenes. He's God in the flesh, and he's God's very word to humanity. In other words, Jesus is God's ultimate divine expression. So when God wanted to speak to the world in the greatest possible way, he did so by sending his word, his son, in the world to reveal God to us. Jesus is the word of God, greater than reason in Greek thought, even wisdom in Jewish thought. He is God's very expression of himself to us. That's what John means when he calls Jesus the word. So what else do we know about the word? Well, John tells us that in the beginning, the word was with God. So he has always existed. He's eternal, and he's always existed with God. He's always been with God, and there's never been a time when he was not with God. So the Word was there in the beginning, and he was there with God. If we only had these truths, that would be amazing enough. No other person can claim to have been with God since the beginning. So when we say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can say it with confidence because we know that Jesus has always existed, And that he never changes. But Jesus is more than God's eternal companion. Uh, John says at the end of this verse that the word, that is Jesus, was God. This Jesus was, he was with God, and he was God. Now this is obviously an extraordinary claim to make. That Jesus, this man who walked the earth and who eventually died on a cross, was the eternal God. And as we've already said, this idea is scandalous to many other religions. And it was especially scandalous to the Jews. In fact, this is what ultimately would get Jesus killed. This apparently blasphemous claim that he was, in fact, God. Uh, We see this early on in the Gospel of John, uh, in chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, uh, after Jesus heals the man who was by the pool. John says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus' claims about who he was would continue to get him in trouble with the Jewish religious leaders. And of course, it would eventually lead to them having him crucified. Despite what a lot of people say, Jesus wasn't killed for being a political revolutionary. He was killed for claiming to be the son of God and claiming to be God himself. And John believes that Jesus is God, uh, which is why he's clear even in this first verse that Jesus was and is God. Um, A lot of groups take, take issue with the claim that Jesus is God. One of the most notable is the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever read their translation of John 1.1, but it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? Anyone know? A God. That's not a capitalized God either. It's a lowercase God. So they're fine to admit that Jesus was with God, uh, but they don't believe he was God. They'll even appeal to the Greek to support this. They'll say, go see, go look at the Greek. Uh, It just says they're God. It's theos in Greek. It just says God. It doesn't say the God, so therefore we believe it's a God. And they're right, it doesn't say the God in the Greek of verse 1, just like it doesn't say the God in the Greek of verse 6, verse 12, verse 13, or verse 18. But they don't have any trouble translating those as capital G, God. That's just this verse because they don't believe Jesus is God. And they don't want to translate this verse in a way that says that he is. There's a reason it doesn't say the God in the Greek. If it did, it would make it difficult for us to figure out what the subject of the sentence is. Is the subject the God or the word? Uh, So it says the word was God. That's the plain reading of the text, and you don't have to add anything to it to understand what John was saying. Other groups will try to get around this by translating it as the word was divine. But John isn't talking about mere divinity. He's talking about deity. He was stating unequivocally that Jesus is God. I don't want to belabor the point, so we'll move on, but I also don't want us to miss how revolutionary this statement would have been and continues to be. We as Christians read it today and we say, of course, Jesus is God. We all believe that. But just like a lot of people struggle with that truth today, a lot of people back then would have struggled with it as well, whether they were Jewish or Gentile. And John doesn't want, us to leave, uh, doesn't want to leave us any room for uncertainty. Jesus is God. And once you come to grips with that reality, you understand why John wanted to record this gospel account. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, knowing Jesus and believing him is a matter of life and death. And John is writing that we might find life in Jesus by putting our faith in him to save us. So moving on to verse 2, it looks like John is just restating himself. And he is, but he's also making it clear that whenever God has existed, Christ has existed as well. He says in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Again, in the beginning is not a starting point. This is describing a timeless eternity. And because the word has always been with God, and God has always existed eternally, then the word, Jesus, has always existed eternally as well. Whenever the beginning was, Jesus was already there with God. The Son is co-eternal and co-existent with God. So Jesus is God, and he's existed eternally with God, and then John tells us even more about Jesus, the word. Not only did he already exist when everything was created, but John says he was also the one through whom all things were created. He says, all things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
So when we go back and read the creation account of Genesis 1, we only see uh, two members of the Trinity named. God who created and the Spirit of God who hovered over the waters. But John says that when God created, he did so through Christ. So Christ was the one who brought all things into creation. So what we realize now when we read Genesis 1 is that all three members of the Trinity were present and at work at the time of creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are some who say we don't need to believe in a Trinitarian God because the Bible doesn't have the word Trinity in it. Uh, Well, the Bible doesn't have the word Bible in it either, uh, but we don't have a problem using that. Trinity is simply the term we use to summarize or represent what the Bible teaches us about who God is, that he is one God and three distinct persons who are each equally God. One God, three distinct persons who are each equally God. We may not be able to wrap our minds around that truth, but we can't deny that it represents the teaching of Scripture. We see all three members of the Trinity mentioned or present at several points in Scripture, most notably at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the Father voices his divine approval of the Son. And we know based on what John says here that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were present in the beginning as well. So what is John telling us here? He's telling us that Jesus is the eternal creator God. There are other passages in the Bible that support this truth as well. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1, 16, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then finally, Hebrews 1, verse 2, But in these last days, he, that's God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So four verses, including our verse in John, that clearly state that everything was created by Jesus and is being upheld by Jesus. And this belief just underscores the fact that Jesus is an uncreated being. If everything was created by Jesus and nothing exists that wasn't created by him, then Jesus himself could not have been created. If John's belief was that God created Jesus and then Jesus created everything else, this would have been a perfect place to clarify that belief. But John didn't believe that. Uh, He believed Jesus is uncreated because Jesus is God. And we believe that as well. In the last two verses of this section, we see more allusions to Genesis 1 in the creation account. Uh, John says Jesus was life. Not that he possessed life or that he gave life, but Jesus himself was life. And he says this life was the light of men. There are definite parallels between John's gospel and the letter of 1 John here as well, where John opens up his letter by proclaiming the word of life to his readers and then reminding them that God is light and encouraging them to stay out of the darkness. Jesus is the source of life, both physical life and spiritual life, and he is the source of light, a light that shines into the darkness of this world. Just as God sent light into the world at creation, now he sends the light of his Son into the world so that we can become new creations. That light is shining in the darkness, and John says the darkness has not overcome it. I don't have to convince you that we live in a world that is full of darkness, Uh, The darkness of ignorance, certainly, those who are blind. There are so many of those who have never heard the name of Jesus. But also the darkness of sin and evil. Men don't know God and they don't want to know God. 
They're at odds with God from birth. And the Bible says that unless God acts first, none of us is going to seek him. But God did act first. He sent his life and life, uh, life and light uh, in the form of Christ into the world so that we could know him and receive that life and that light ourselves. It may seem like the darkness is winning as we see what's going on in our world today, but we have this truth and this promise that darkness will not overcome the light. Jesus tells us in John 16, take heart, I have overcome the world. And we rest in that hope that he will one day make all things new. So John tells us that Jesus is God's word to man or God's word to us. And then John shows us that Jesus is the light of the world. So moving on into verses 6 through 9, John talks more about this, Jesus being a light, the light, specifically how Jesus was announced and testified to by John the Baptist. So the Gospel of John was written by John the Apostle. He wrote after the death and resurrection of Jesus. John the Apostle is now writing about John the Baptist, who announced Jesus' coming prior to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and who, of course, was eventually imprisoned and then killed by Herod. So John, the author, tells us John the Baptist was sent by God to bear witness to the light that was coming. That gives John's message uh, and his mission divine authority. John the author is validating John the Baptist's ministry as divinely appointed. So just as Jesus was sent into the world by God, so John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus by announcing who Jesus was and announcing his imminent ministry on earth. Uh, John the apostle is clear that John the Baptist was not the light. There may have still been some at this point who knew more about John the Baptist than they did about Jesus, or maybe they were confused about who John the Baptist was. Uh, So John clears it up. He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light so that people would believe in Christ. Uh, This whole idea of John the Baptist bearing witness about Jesus is is actually really important. If you'll remember in John 8, uh, Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees, and he states about himself what John has just told us in these opening verses. So in John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is telling them that he is the light, and he is the life, and that he came to bring people out of darkness. And notice how the Pharisees respond. They say, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Uh, It turns out there was actually an Old Testament precedent uh, for this statement. According to the law, there had to be at least two or three witnesses present to validate or verify what someone was claiming in order for it to be true. Otherwise, it just turned into one person's word versus another. So the Pharisees, from a somewhat technically biblical standpoint, um, tell Jesus they can't believe him because they think that he is his only witness. But we see multiple witnesses to the person of Jesus throughout John's gospel. Here we have John the Baptist in verses 7 and 8. John the Apostle, who's writing, uh, says at the beginning of the letter in uh, 114 and also at the end of the letter, in 21 verse 24, that he's bearing witness to the things that he has seen. Uh, Jesus says God the Father uh, himself testifies to what Jesus is doing. Uh, Jesus says the scriptures testify to him. And he says when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify to who he is as well. So John doesn't leave any room for doubt in his gospel. In addition to Jesus' own testimony about himself, there are also at least five other witnesses that confirm Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, Let's be honest, once you've got God the Father and the Holy Spirit on your side, uh, the rest is just kind of a bonus. Um, John the Baptist bore witness about the light that was coming into the world. And John the author tells us this light was the true light and that he was going to give light to everyone. 
We can't understand this verse as saying that everyone is going to receive the light of salvation or that everyone is going to get saved. We just know that that's not the case. Uh, But that light would shine on all men, even if they rejected the light and chose not to believe. This supports John's later claim in John 3.16 that God sending Jesus into the world was an act of love for the whole world. He was revealing himself to the world by shining his light and his love on us through the person and work of Jesus. Not everyone would believe. John will get into that next. But the light was there for all to see, and that light continues shining today. So Jesus is God's word to us. Jesus is the light of the world. And then finally, John shows us that Jesus is our only hope of salvation. And this gets to the core of what John is trying to communicate. John says in verse 9 that Jesus was coming into the world. This is what John the Baptist was announcing. Jesus is coming. And now John uh, the Apostle describes what happened when Jesus entered the world. And he says in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Again, he's reiterating the fact that Jesus is the creator of all things. Then he says, Yet the world did not know him. Jesus entered the world that he created, the world of which he was the rightful owner. And yet the world didn't recognize him. The world was ignorant of of him and of who he was, and therefore they didn't recognize him as the Son of God. Imagine that, the creator of the world stepping into his creation and the world not giving him the honor and the recognition he was due. That's what happened when Jesus took on flesh and entered our world. That reminds me a little bit of the show Undercover Boss. Has anybody ever watched that show? I know Bob got you all to admit you watched Netflix last week, so just admit you watch reality TV too. Um, Now, if you haven't seen the show, the premise is... Uh, that the boss, uh, the owner of a company, will go undercover as kind of a ground-level employee, and they'll work there with other employees and kind of get a feel for the day-to-day operation. And the employees don't know that this is the, the boss that's there with them. And they go through all the training and everything, and the boss is usually a little bumbly and all that. And they get to the end, and they reveal, uh, this is actually the owner of the company. And, and uh, everyone's surprised. No one had any idea or anything else. But Jesus is kind of like the ultimate undercover boss. He steps into creation. Uh, he's the owner. He's the creator of the world. And yet the world doesn't recognize him. They don't treat him as the creator and the savior of the world. We might say, well, the world was ignorant. They didn't know to expect Jesus, so it's no wonder they didn't recognize him. John moves from the world in general to the Jewish people in particular. And he says they didn't recognize him either. In verse 11, he says he came to his own. And that could be referring to his own people or his own uh, creation or his own home. And his own people did not receive him. And his own people here is referring to the Jewish people, the people of Israel. They should have known who Jesus was. They were his special people, set apart to belong to him and to worship him. But they not only didn't recognize him, they rejected him as well. This will be a common theme throughout John's gospel, that the Jewish people, God's elect people, who were given the promise of the Messiah, would reject Jesus and his teaching and would ultimately carry out his crucifixion on the cross. It's a sad reality, but the Jewish people rejected their Savior. They put him to death. The majority continued to reject him throughout the early years of the church, and the majority continued to reject him today. You see, believing that there's a God is not enough. The Bible is clear that we must believe in Jesus and put our faith in him in order to be saved. Jesus says he was sent by God to the lost sheep of Israel, but those sheep, by and large, rejected their shepherd. Thankfully, though, that's not the end of the story. There were many who rejected Jesus, but thank God there were also many who believed in him and were saved. 
John moves from Israel and now gets even more specific. He's gone from the world to Israel and now he's talking about the church, the true Israel. And he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what characterizes the true people of God? One, they know who Jesus is, they recognize him, they believe in him, and they receive him. That's what salvation requires. Knowing who Jesus is, believing he is who he says he is, and then receiving him as Savior and Lord in your life. There may have been a group who rejected Jesus, but Jesus saved everyone the Father had given him. Jesus will express that truth throughout this gospel, that there were many God gave to Jesus to save and to hold, and Jesus said he wouldn't lose a single one. And John says, when we know, we believe, and we receive, we are given the right to become children of God. So this tells us two things. One, at one point, we were not children of God, right? We can't become what we already were. We don't start out being children of God. Instead, when we put our faith in Christ, we move from being enemies of God to being, being included in the family of God. And then two, it's only through faith in Jesus that we can claim to belong to God. John is clear. It's that belief in Jesus that moves us from enemies of God to children of God. What John is describing is justification by faith. When we put our faith in Christ, God justifies us. He removes our sin and he declares us righteous. And when he does that, one of the results is that we become children of God. We are born into a new family, a spiritual family. We become the children of God and he becomes our father. This is the gospel It's a reason we call this book the Gospel of John because he is preaching the gospel message. We bring our sinfulness to God and God takes it and he gives us his righteousness and its place. God makes it all possible. Everything John has described was initiated and it was carried out by God. God created the world through Christ. He sent Christ into the world. And as John will say here in verse 13, God brings about our new birth. That is our salvation. John says, as the children of God, we have been born, and we can understand that as born again. We've been born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, it's, it's not a product of your ethnicity or your bloodline or belonging to the right group of people that saves you. We see that so clearly in Israel's rejection of Jesus. They said they were the children of Abraham. Uh, Jesus said the true children of Abraham were the ones who believe in him. Uh, We aren't born again by the will of the flesh, so it's not something that we can do on our own. Uh, We can't do anything in our flesh to move ourselves from unsaved to saved. God is the one who does the moving. And then it's not according to the will of man, so it's not something we can just decide to do on our own. We don't make that decision. God does. Everything is initiated and carried out by God. Just as we didn't decide to be physically born, so we don't just decide to be spiritually born. We are born of God and adopted into his family only when he moves in our hearts and convicts us of our need for him and gives us the faith we need to believe in his son. This is what God does. He moves us from darkness to light, from death to light, and from his enemies to his children. And he made it all possible by sending Christ to take on flesh, to live among us, to die and rise again for us. That's the gospel. And John closes out this passage uh, with this verse. He says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, this declaration would have been so scandalous to the people hearing it back then. And it's still scandalous today. God actually became human and lived here on earth? He did. 
And because he did, we can have hope of living forever with him. John says the word became flesh. So he didn't stop becoming God. He just took on flesh as God. He's what we often call the God-man. He was truly God and truly man. He was God incarnate, the creator who put on creation so that he could dwell among us. This verb dwelt here in verse 14 literally means Jesus pitched his tent among us. So it points all the way back to when Moses set up the tent of meeting where he would meet with God on behalf of the people. He set it up outside the camp because the people were afraid to encounter God. So Moses would go outside the camp to meet with God in that tent, and he would intervene on behalf of the people. Then came the tabernacle, and that was placed right in the middle of the camp. And that's where God dwelled among his people. Eventually that was replaced by the temple. And in all these structures, God was dwelling with his people, but he was still removed from his people. He was outside the camp, and then he was inside the camp, but he was separated by the veil. And then God sends Jesus. And through Jesus, God pitches his tent or he tabernacles with us in a whole new way. Now we have God in the flesh living among us. We're able to look at him and touch him and interact with him face to face. So throughout biblical history, we see God moving closer and closer to his people. And now in Jesus, we see a level of intimacy that far exceeds what was possible in our relationship with God in the past. Now God is living among us through Jesus. And of course, after Jesus ascends back to heaven, we experience a greater fulfillment of God with us because God comes to live in us through his spirit. Now we have God with us in every place and at every moment, leading us and reminding us that he is always with us. And we look forward to that day when we get to live in God's presence forever, when that barrier of sin is finally removed and we get to enjoy perfect eternity with him. Do you see the links that God has gone to to bring us into his family By sending Jesus, he did what we could never do and made it possible for us finally to be back in right relationship with him. I noticed as I was studying this passage, John underscores that we're not born again of the will of the flesh. And then he says in the very next verse that the word became flesh. So what John is telling us is that God was born of flesh so that we could be born of God. God had to become one of us so that we could become one of his children. He had to take our place. Reminded me of a quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity where he says, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is the great exchange that makes our salvation possible. God becomes man so men can belong to God. Jesus takes our sin so we can have his righteousness. He dies our death so we can have his life. God has done everything necessary to give us salvation, and he's done it by sending Christ to take on flesh and carry out his mission of atoning for our sin and rising again to conquer sin and death. That's what John wants us to know and to believe. Do you believe it? We don't want to be among the people who ignore Jesus or reject Jesus. We want to know and believe and receive so that we can enjoy life with him now and forever. John is a witness to this. He tells us, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John was an eyewitness to the glory of Jesus. He was convinced that Jesus was the Word, the eternal Son of God the Father. We are children of God now, but only Jesus is God's Son. That word only means unique or one of a kind. There's no one else like Him. And putting our faith in Him is our only hope of having eternal life with God. John couldn't help but record what he had seen 
and experience so that others might believe and receive Jesus. John's hope was that many would hear this message, believe in Jesus and experience the salvation that Jesus offers. And that's our hope as a church as well. If you don't believe in Jesus, we pray today that this will be the day that you turn from your sin and put your faith in him. Maybe you're in that group that's never heard of Jesus. You've never heard the gospel message before. Or maybe you've heard it a hundred times, but you reject that Jesus is the only Son of God or the only way to salvation. If you don't know him, if you're not a child of God through faith in Jesus, please come talk to me or one of the pastors or one of our leaders after the service. We'd love to show you from the Word of God how you can be saved. Two things I think this passage calls us to. Faith and proclamation. If you don't know Jesus, then you need to put your faith in him. He's the only way to be saved. And if you do know Jesus, then you need to proclaim him like John the Baptist did, like John the Apostle did. He is the way, the truth, and the life that brings us back to God. And we've been given both the responsibility and the privilege of sharing his gospel with others. The gospel of John is a great starting point if you're looking to share the gospel with others. It's a great place to start. I have other resources I'd be happy to share with you as well. But let's do more than just affirm the truths of this gospel this morning. Let's apply them to our own lives, and then let's commit to share them with others as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your gospel message to us through Christ and through your, wit- your written word. God, when you wanted to speak to us most clearly of your love for us, you gave us Christ. You sent Christ as your word into creation, God. I pray that we would give you all the glory and the honor and the praise that you're due for doing that, God. You did what we could not do by sending Christ to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death we deserved, and then to rise again and conquer sin and death on our behalf. God, thank you for that. Thank you for this record of your salvific work that you've carried out through Christ. God, we praise you as the eternal God, as the creator of all things, and as our only hope of salvation. Thank you for this morning, God. I pray you would work in our hearts. Apply these truths to our lives, God. Help us to leave here changed, God. Help us to leave with a better understanding of who you are and of what you call us to. And God, help us be faithful. God, we pray that that spirit that is in us now would work and accomplish uh, his work in our lives and help us to be uh, the faithful disciples you've called us to be. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Edwards Road Baptist Church. We hope you are meaningfully involved in a local church, but if you aren't, we would love to have you join us on Sunday mornings as we worship God and hear from His Word together. You can find more information about our church by visiting our website at edwardsroad.org.